We, uh, I'm actually, I'm actually secretly looking forward to it. To well, because the thing is, so global temperature rise is basically locked and loaded. Um, it is, um, it's very unlikely that it's going to um, wipe us out as a species. I mean, we're, we're people really underestimate how clever we are when faced with existential threat. We're just not th- faced with existential threat very frequently. And I mean, it's like we, you know, we. If you look at like you know the span of, I mean, the, the last kind of period of existential threat, like World War II, you've got like this six-year period in which we develop radar, the atomic bomb, um, we develop the the jet engine. I mean, all because of this existential threat. So, I, I figure a good existential threat every now and again. It, I think it's good for engineering. I think it's going to solve. And like, you're going to get the sea level rise. We're going to get huge like locks and all this sorts of crazy shit it's gonna be fun i don't know you know that's awesome you know i already turned on the recorder i can uh i can edit that out if you want or uh, it would be perfect because uh you know it's devops week and devops people are faced with existential threats all the time and uh and maybe they can uh learn to appreciate them more um well i mean if you figure necessity is the mother of invention right and and an existential threat a broad existential threat is is the kind of environment you need to create this this shared in, in desperation for invention. I mean, this is this is honestly what put a man on the moon. There is no man on the moon absent the Cold War. You just cannot summon the investment from society. Um, and so, yeah, I think an existential threat is going to be great. I mean, you know. You know, relatively great because I, I think it's basically going to be fine. I mean, there are going to be places that we're going to have to dehabitate. Um, so that'll be. I mean, like Florida is pr- there's probably nothing that can be done about Florida. Um, there's no amount of engineering that's going to solve that. But I mean, we'll solve it here at the Golden Gate. You figure, you know? Yeah, and I mean, and you see, year. you see a lot of perversions come out of Florida one way or another. So uh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, Florida's a hard one to solve, but um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think it's going to be. You know, I, I think as someone who postdates. The, the Apollo program, I think any engineer looks on that period with a certain amount of envy. Like, wow, how great would it be to be alive with that kind of shared sense of mission? And But that shared sense of mission often comes because of an existential threat. Um, and, you know, in the, in the small, that's kind of like a startup or whatever. But, um, you know, ultimately, ultimately, a company going out of business is not an existential threat. Right. Ultimately, no one's going to go hungry. People are going to work hard, but it's just—it it doesn't give you that kind of that—that—that that, that true. Um, I don't know. Shared desperation. We'll see. Sure. Yeah. You think about like, uh, yeah. You mentioned World War II, and you can think of like uh, Rosie the Riveter, and like all you know, um, totally. just like the entire uh, United States rising to the occasion and uh, probably bonding over it. Um, yeah, and you know, it's funny. The not to get totally off topic, but they. Um, it, it, and I'm sure if I will look back on this in 50 years and be like, oh, my God, I said what? I said that Because <laughs> I, I, I think you don't want to underestimate the kind of psychological trauma from that as well. And, you know, the, the grandmother of a friend of mine growing up absolutely hated with a white-hot passion FDR because it was because of FDR that she had to go work at Lockheed during the war. Like the fact that like – you know the, the fact that like the Nazis were defeated and everything. It's like no, no, not interesting to her. It's like it was it, that that whole period was so traumatic for her, even though it was very. So, um, I, I shouldn't underestimate the trauma associated with it, but 
you know, it'll be fun. The challenges are good. It, you know, it's good to have hard problems. Right. Okay, cool. Well, I guess let's dive into talking about sure. software. Uh, Brian Cantrell is the CTO of Joyent. Uh, Brian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for, thanks for having me. The focus of this week is DevOps, and we will talk about how Joyent's products relate to DevOps, but let's start with definitions. What is DevOps? Ooh, that's a very good question because I think you'll get a lot of different answers. So one question that I've been grappling with, um, is there an actual um, – are developers versus operators, are they born versus made? Because I, I do think that there is – I see – there are fundamental differences in the disposition of developers and operators. And I think I would say that DevOps is about as getting as close to the middle as we can and maximizing empathy for the other point of view. However, I do think, and I don't know, maybe I'm just being ossified in, in my relatively older age, but I, I think that at the end of the day, one is one or the other. Um, now, I think that we can get, again, as close to the middle, but I'll, I'll give you like a really concrete example of how I see um, the difference. Because I think an operator's primary responsibility is to the service and to the customers. And to, uh, and to uh, we need to, you know, if we're in an outage, we need to end an outage. We need to be up. A developer's primary, uh, the software engineer's primary purpose is the actual corpus of software, the artifact, the machine. And in general, you, these things shouldn't conflict. And to me, DevOps is about believing in both of these things, that we're going to develop software with the service in mind. We're going to operate the service with the software in mind. But you do get to points where sometimes you have to choose one or the other. And I'll give you a very concrete example is you've got a service – it is not behaving properly. You know that restarting the service will restore service. You got customers that are down. If I re if I restart the service, it will restore service. However, you also know that that will not give you enough data to debug the problem. That that engineers need longer with the malfunctioning service to be able to understand the problem. What do you do? And I do think that this is where you get a kind of a fundamental operator mindset says, restart the service. Customers are down, restart the service, let the software engineers figure it out a different day. Today's the wrong day to figure it out. Excuse <coughs> me. And software engineers will tell you, um, if we don't figure it out now, we will have this happen again. And if we don't use this opportunity to understand why this service is failing, we're going to get right back into the same situation again. So as you've said, DevOps does mean different things to different people. And I worked at a trading company where DevOps guys were people that uh, you know monitored uptime and getting feeds correctly and negotiating trading errors. And I've also worked at an ad tech company where the role was similar. Uh, and in both these cases, if there's a fire, the DevOps guy was often the first in line to fight it. Um, and, but a commonality in each of these places was that DevOps had a large responsibility for managing deployments. Um, yeah, but among all these things, like why is DevOps so subject to overloading? Well, I, I think it's subject to overloading because, again, I think that fundamentally 
I'm not sure that it actually exists. I, and in other words, I think that it, that that you've got developers that are performing operations and operators that are developing software, but that ultimately one does come from one of these perspectives or the other. I think it is, and again, you can kind of, and, and I believe, and we certainly have a joint it, software engineers that have a great deal of operator empathy and operators that got, have a great deal of software development empathy. So we do try to get to DevOps as close as we can, but I think it is, it, it's, it's an unstable state um, that if you, it, it's a synthetic and unstable state, perhaps. This is one of the things I wonder, that, it, that it, people are not developers slash operators. They are developers or they are operators, and the other half of that is something that, that they are, that they're doing earnestly, but is ultimately against their character in some way. So uh, this may be something else that has a synthetic definition, but what do you define as the terms continuous delivery? That so that's interesting as well, um, and I, I there I think there would be a huge spectrum of of uh, answers. I, I think that um, I, I would guess can, true continuous delivery, I suppose, would be every push results in a deployment, um, which is great for some stuff, um, especially for stateless stuff. I think that too many people that do continuous deployment um, believe that all the world is stateless, which it isn't. Um, lots of the world is stateful, and for stateful stuff, um, a deployment um, is it's much more complicated to have a deployment that doesn't drop outstanding operations on the floor um, or doesn't disrupt service in any way. Um, so um, you end up for stateful stuff. You and, and you know, speaking for us in terms of you know, we develop every layer of the stack, including the operating system. Trust me that you don't want continuous deployment of your operating system. Um, you don't actually want us to bounce the box every time we push something to, to the, the OS, um, even though we might love that, actually. Um, I mean, one of the challenges of OS development is that the, um, the really interesting issues in the OS often only occur after it's been up for a year and a half, two years, three years. Um, so you actually need to let systems run to that length in order to, get to, 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 to actually let those issues emerge. Uh, and people expect that out of their operating system. So I think you know you got kind of one definition over with the the, the operating system, where to me, obviously, you, you can't kind of redeploy the actual OS. Um, but what we do do is we are, are continuously deploying new platform images into production, such that if machines naturally reboot, they will pick up the latest operating system. And then you, at the other end of the spectrum, you have stuff that's totally stateless that can be you know redeployed all the time. And continuous deployment would be much more truly continuous. Um, so uh, I think there's going to be a spectrum of answers to that. Um, I think the important thing is that people should not be prescriptive, um, that different bodies of software, different layers of the stack are going to have different answers to that question. Could you describe those interesting issues that develop in operating systems after two to three years? <laughs> oh, so, well, I mean, it, lots of things. I mean, so, I mean, first of all, just the basic ones, if you've got, you know, a race condition that is very unlikely to hit, um, that you know, if you if you spread the, the the time axis out arbitrarily, it's increasingly likely that you hit this sometime over time. So, I mean, it's amazing how many systems we've seen that were up for three and a half years, two years, what have you, and then died on a race condition that was present all along. That they they basically you know this thing was dodging bullets 
um, 24-7-365, and one of the bullets finally had its name on it. Um, the, um, the, then, so that, that's kind of one class of problems. Um, another class of problems is just resource utilization issues where you just have, you know, you, maybe it's as simple as a memory leak in the kernel. Maybe it's a simple, um, but often it's more complicated than that where you, you have resources being used and reused and reused and reused and reused and there are consequences of that. Maybe it's fragmentation. Maybe it's performance. Maybe it's tables that are growing without bound. Um, and you've got a system that's either slowly degrading or perhaps ultimately failing fatally um, and so you know when you're when you are this general purpose substrate in terms of the operating system um, I mean the expectations are that you're going to be up in perpetuity uh, effectively uh, and you know we have always kind of fantasized about um, being able to schedule reboots and so on but the, the reality is that um, people don't want that for good reason they want to be able to run forever um, and as long as the machine runs, they want to be able to have um, – they want to be up, um, which is not an unreasonable expectation. So um, so, so, yeah. so we were talking about continuous delivery. I think you've been around long enough that you've probably been around since the inception of the term. How has continuous delivery changed since people first started talking about it? That's a good question. Now, in terms of when did that term arise um, – that is a good question um, because I don't think that – I mean that is a – I mean just go, reflecting back on the service-oriented architectures of the last bubble, of the dot-com bubble, um, and you know, continuous delivery was really not a thing. DevOps was not – I don't think I even heard the term DevOps. It would be interesting to know kind of when it actually originated. Um, but I don't think I really heard that term until like 2010 almost. I mean, I feel that it was, uh, I mean, maybe it's earlier than that. Um, but I, and I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, to what degree does that coincide with the rise of open source and everything else? Um, but certainly, you know, in, in the world of 20 years ago where you had proprietary software, uh, I mean, you were just in a completely different world, you know, where you're not, there's nothing to continuously deploy. Um, you know, where you are, you're running an app, you've got an app server from, you know, you've got WebSphere that you're running and then you've got maybe your own glop that's in there that's kind of monolithic, massive monolithic thing that if you're lucky, you upgrade twice a year. And that was kind of, um, it was called an upgrade, not, not continuous deployment, that's for sure. But yeah, it'd be interesting. I actually don't know when the term originated. Um, it'd be interesting to go learn that. Okay, but, um, well, so... Despite the history, um, how, I mean, how do you see that that evolution though um, over time? I mean, how has it? Because because originally, obviously, it, it was less continuous than maybe it is today. So, I mean, oh, it was definitely less continuous because you had these these massive services that um, were, would be upgraded at such a slow cadence that people would put more and more kind of stuff in it, and that would would uh, make the upgrade riskier and riskier and riskier. And you had these the second what, the second system syndromes, these second systems that are going to kind of solve everything. So, I mean, it's really night and day. There's no real comparison to, to the deployment today. And, you know, this is where it's kind of hard to know which came first, the chicken or the egg. But where we are today is that instead of people thinking about um, deploying these entire monolithic apps, um, we're breaking our, these, monolith, these monoliths up into much smaller entities, microservices, that can then be redeployed much faster they we drive those down to be as stateless as possible and then that whole microservice ideally can be expressed as a container I and mean, this is a, a major 
Um, you know, whether this is fueling the container revolution or the container revolution is fueling the continuous deployment revolution. But if you look at continuous deployment and microservices and DevOps and containers, all these things are kind of related to one another. And they're all fueling one another. And now we're in a very different world where you can take a, 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 a container that contains, you know, the, the latest version of a service and now go deploy that into production. I think that that's a lot of the enthusiasm for things like Docker are the ability to do that and to kind of really deliver on that vision. Okay, good. That's a very useful definition. Um, what is Joyent? So, um, Joyent is a cloud computing company. Um, we've been around for for a while, um, but um, Joyent's belief has always been, since its inception, really, that containers were the next step function for infrastructure. Uh, now, the difference is that we were really in what I've been known to say we've been in the, the we were in the right place for the wrong time for an extended <laughs> period of time. So, we um, had uh, believed in containers long before the rest of the world was really ready for them. Um, and um, for a long time, we were really emphasizing the operational attributes of containers because we run containers directly on the metal so in, and always have in a multi-tenant fashion. So when you go to deploy a, a container on the joint cloud, um, and I should say that we, we operate our own public cloud, the joint public cloud, and then we also take that software that we use to operate our cloud and we make that available as software and then that's open source as well. So um, we are both a software company and a service company um, and it's the same software on both sides. Um, and from my, you know, speaking personally, I love the fact that we have software that we deploy ourselves because it means by the time you are, if you choose to operate our software on-premises, you've got the assurance of knowing that we're running it ourselves in production. Um, so we're delivering you a high-quality artifact in that regard. Um, but so Joyent has always believed in containers, um, has really emphasized the operational aspects of it, performance and so on. Um, we were uh, right in that, in that the, the, those operational efficiencies are definitely true. Um, but we were wrong in that we kind of we, we missed a, a, a really attractive attribute of containers, which has got nothing to do with the operator and everything to do with the developer. We're talking about the kind of the DevOps difference, we were really emphasizing the operator. Was well, it turns out that for for the developer, containers are a potentially a tremendous win or are a tremendous win because they allow the developer to take a service that's become somewhat complicated, it's got different attributes and so on, and, and allows them to, to kind of bundle that together into a container and then deploy that quickly into production. So I can deploy into production what's running on my laptop and vice versa. I, I, and I know that I can, I can iterate something quickly, get it working, get it tested, and then deploy it into production. That's the vision anyway. So, and I, yeah. so you, you've given a, a good motivation for containers. Um, for listeners who may not know, what is a container? Right, so a, a container um, is a virtual operating system. So um, a container, you know, in the cloud, you've got to virtualize at some layer of the stack. And historically, the layer of the stack we've, that we've chosen to virtualize at is the machine. You get a virtual machine. You get a virtual x86 microprocessor. You get virtual DRAM. And on that virtual machine, you put an operating system kernel. You load your own Ubuntu or what have you, and then you put your app on top of that. And that's virtual hardware. Uh, and then there, there are features of virtual hardware. Um, in particular, you get to run whatever OS you want, which is very nice. Um, but there are you get operational inefficiencies. Um, in the, the when you are virtualizing at such a low layer to the stack, really hard to drive tenancy high, really hard to get high performance. 
Um, containers take a different approach. A virtual operating system takes a different approach. Instead of virtualizing the hardware, let's virtualize at a higher layer of the stack. Let's virtualize the operating system. Let's give each tenant their own virtual OS. Looks, feels, smells like hardware in quotes, but it's not actually hardware. You're not, you don't have your own OS kernel. You don't bring your own OS kernel. You are running the extant OS kernel, but it again, it looks and feels and smells like its own machine. Like if you go to CD slash, you see your own root. Um, you've got your own networking device. I mean, it depends on the on the, the implementation, the architecture. But you effectively you have your own virtualized instances of things that you associate with being the hardware. But they are lies that are being told at a higher level of abstraction. Um, lies being a euphemism for virtualization, of course. We, we, I guess we should call them things that are virtualized, not lied about. But the reality is they're being lied about. Um, and when you when you do that. Um, what you're able to do is is now what you're deploying is not an entire OS kernel, this kind of bulky thing. You're deploying only the application differentiation on that OS. So this is why Docker containers are small. You know, this is why you go to um, and you go get like an Alpine container and it's super small. It's like you know five megs um, because it is only those application components. You don't have your own OS in there. It's quick to provision because you're not booting an OS. Um, you, you don't have virtual hardware, so they're quick and they're light. Um, and the the kind of the, the, the challenge that that we're thinking we have seen is, you know, where do you run those containers? And for us, we run those containers on the bare metal. So our hypervisor, if you will, is SmartOS, and it can run these containers directly on the bare metal. The, the containers in SmartOS were designed to be multi-tenant safe, such that if you have root in one container, you can't get root in another container or what have you. Linux has got a slightly different history um, in that the containers were really not designed to be multi-tenant safe. And right now, people that are deploying like Docker containers in the cloud are primarily doing it on virtual machines. They're deploying containers on top of virtual machines, on top of hardware, which has a lot of inefficiencies, a lot of managerial inefficiencies, a lot of overhead associated with it. Um, so what what we have done, it's kind of get the best of both worlds, is we've got the this software stack, Triton, which allows Docker containers, Linux Docker containers, to be deployed directly on the metal um, in a in a SmartOS zone, SmartOS container, which gives you kind of the operational efficiencies, but also gives you the development efficiencies you get from from running Docker. You touched on this, but what are the benefits from running a container on the principal hardware rather than having a VM? So, I mean, first and foremost is performance um, from a tenant perspective. Um, so if you are, uh, if you're in the cloud, you're doing I.O., um, when you do I.O. in virtual hardware, there are, there are two hops you need to take. You've got to hop into your local operating system, and then that operating system has to, has to talk to the actual hardware. But the OS doesn't actually know about the actual hardware, and that's the whole point. Um, so the OS is going through a virtualized layer. I mean, the OS is being lied to in the virtual hardware model. And that doesn't make anything any faster. It doesn't make networking any faster. It doesn't make I.O. any faster. Um, I mean, sometimes when I, you know, people can kind of complain about the I.O. performance that they get out of virtual hardware. It's like, man, if you had any idea of the amount of complexity that has to go on to do this I.O. Um, so anything that's going to talk to the real world is going to be slow in virtual hardware. So, I mean, the, the first kind of big advantage is performance. 
Um, the uh, if you're running your own computers, your own physical hardware, which on the one hand is less common now than it was ten years ago. On the other hand, I don't think it's going away. I think people are going to be. I mean, I, I would imagine that the you said you were working at a at a trading firm. They probably ran their own hardware. Um, so I, you know, I don't think that's going to go away. If you're running your own hardware, there are massive tendency. Advantages. There, there's only so many VMs, you can, hardware VMs, you can get onto a single compute node, um, largely because things like DRAM are, are really not meaningfully shareable between hardware virtual machines. Um, DRAM is much better utilized when you're running with containers on the metal, so you have much better tenancy. But actually, I think the big advantage for most folks is. Neither of those things. I mean, I think that those things are both kind of inside baseball um, in that, you know, the, the, the better performance and better tendency are important to certain classes of operators. The actual bigger win is eliminating the abstraction entirely. That if you're going to be deploying containers anyway, having to deal with a virtual machine that sits in the middle is just this unnecessary layer of fat. Um, from a, not even from a latency or, or bandwidth perspective, all of that as well, but just from a mental perspective, that you've got to go. You can't just go deploy a container on the cloud. I got to go spin up a VM first, and then deploy the container on the VM. And by the way, like which VM are you going to deploy the container on? And now I've got to manage a bunch of VMs and then manage containers on top of the VMs, and it looks a lot like managing physical infrastructure, um, and all of a sudden everything's gone up a layer, and now I'm managing the same kind of the, the, the tax I had with physical infrastructure I have with virtual infrastructure in the cloud. And with, with Triton, actually, we found that the big win that people really love is the fact that they don't deal with VMs at all. You just provision containers, and you spin up a container, and it's running in the cloud somewhere. You don't care where. Um, just the way when you spin up a VM, it's running in the cloud somewhere. So that's what we have found that people really like about it is that like, hey, I just don't have to deal with this anymore at all. I am, and I am, I'm only paying for what I use now. I, I pay for the DRAM that I use in my actual containers. I don't have to spin up these VMs that are kind of waiting around for a container to be spun up on them. Um, so there, I think that, that the, the big advantage for containers actually directly on the metal is beyond the performance advantages, beyond the tendency advantage, is the is the, the, the mental diet that everybody gets to go on of I don't have to think of spinning up a VM anymore. I can simply spin up containers and I can think purely in terms of containers. That is, that's the abstraction with which I work. You mentioned Triton. What is Triton? So Triton is the software stack that we developed um, that is based on SmartOS, our operating system, Smart Data Center, which is our orchestration software. And then we pulled that together with a Docker endpoint. And th that allows us to have a Docker host that's virtualized across the entire data center and allows you to just think in terms of containers, just provision containers. You don't provision VMs at all with Triton. You only provision OS containers. You can do that for Docker instances. You can also just provision an LX, a, a Linux container. If you want to just provision containerized Linux, and you will get a you know an Ubuntu or a CentOS that looks a lot like a virtual machine, but spins up a lot faster and performs a lot better, um, and is much leaner. And could you describe in more detail how Triton combines features from Smart OS and Docker? 
Yeah, so the, so SmartOS is the is the substrate that underlies Triton, um, and then we've added a Linux system call table to SmartOS, so that allows it to execute Linux binaries. So then we have Linux binaries that are running inside of a SmartOS zone. That's then orchestrated with Smart Data Center, and then the Docker remote API endpoint is actually implemented by Smart Data Center itself as a microservice. So what you speak to when you speak to a Docker host in Triton, you don't speak to a VM running the Docker engine. You speak to a Docker service that implements the Docker remote API. You still use all your same Docker commands, you Docker PS, what have you, Docker run, but you are talking to the remote API that is actually, and it's actually funny, the, you know, at one point there was a remote API endpoint to say which version of Go you're on, but um, our Docker service is actually, it's actually implemented in Node, not Go, and the guys are like, what do we say for this? I'm like, I don't know, just make up, make up a number, I don't know. Fortunately, that kind of went away, um, but... Um, you know, we've been able to totally virtualize the idea of the Docker host by implementing that Docker remote API, which has been really huge for us. So to bring people back who may have become lost at some point in this conversation, <laughs> why is containerization and virtualization so why, – why are these topics so relevant to the DevOps world? So they're relevant to the DevOps world because a container it, it is a much closer mental match for what we're actually doing. What we are actually deploying is we're deploying an application or a service. That service has certain dependencies. It's not a simple binary anymore. It can be that there may be interdependent services within that service. But that that service is best expressed as effectively a tarball that you're going to drop down onto the cloud. That's one way you can think of it. It's just like an archive of binaries or, or programs that we're going to drop down onto the cloud, we need to be able to, to allow that to execute in a safe and multi-tenant way. And a container is the, is the leanest abstraction that fits that. The container is the shrink-to-fit abstraction for what we are actually trying to do, which is deploy services and continuously deploy services. Describe Joyant's perspective on containers before and after the existence of Docker. Yeah, so I mean, I think before uh, Docker, I think we were really emphasizing the operational aspects of it um, and the, the performance and so on. Uh, before Docker 2, um, in order to run containers in the joint cloud, you had to run a SmartOS binary. Um, now, we've got a lot of things run on SmartOS. Um, <coughs> you can run Ruby and Python and Perl and so on, PHP and so on. Um, but the reality is it's a different... Uh, it's a, it's a, just a different system, and it, it's a it's, it's Unix still, but it's a different Unix. It's like the difference between FreeBSD and Linux, um, and you know SmartOS different yet again, and you know it's the differences are no more than the differences between FreeBSD and Linux, but it's a difference. So one of the the, the shifts in perspective are like actually with Docker becoming this kind of de facto binary format, we need to be able to execute actual Linux binaries. Um, and adding a Linux system call table to SmartOS allows us to now execute Linux binaries natively on the metal. So that was a that was a very big shift. That then enables um, Linux, uh, containerized Linux, which allows us to just run, you know, you can, again, run Ubuntu or CentOS, what have you, um, directly in the container. And then, you know, what we've really kind of come to see is that the the real fuel for the container movement is not from the operations side, it's from the development side or the DevOps side. It's from this ability to continuously deploy, <coughs> this ability 
for developers to think about de- de- developing not just an application, but actually a service or even a software platform. Um, you know, um, I was talking to um, a guy from Couchbase, Tron from Couchbase, describes this as software platform as a service, SPAS. Um, and these are these kind of these are these spastic apps um, where we are um, are taking a developer is able to think in terms of the service, and you basically have you can view it as kind of this just add water kind of container where I've actually given you now a, a pass effectively off of GitHub or off of my uh, and and now if you just hydrate this thing, you will now have your own pass. Uh, and I think that's the model we're moving to. Which allows people to get the power of PaaS without the lock-in. I mean, I think people love, you know, developers love a PaaS until the abstractions no longer fit. Um, <clears throat> what this allows you to do is everyone now has their own PaaS. It's very easy to have your own PaaS, and I can now iterate someone else's PaaS um, because we are now treating a PaaS is no longer a kind of a service to which we have lock-in, but now looks a lot more like a body of software that, that we can now evolve. Um, so I think that is is part of the reason why, you know, the, the way that Docker's kind of changed our thinking is the realization that developers are this great substrate for the the containerization um, and that we... I, we don't need to, to think of containers only as VMs. We can exploit some of the special properties of containers and connect that to developers and then get a huge win on really accelerate the, the much broader containerization movement. The irony is that people are like, okay, developers, we love containers, but now how are we ever going to deploy this into production? This is not ready for production. Meanwhile, we've been running these things in production for a decade um, and have got kind of solved all the production problems from a networking perspective, multi tenancy perspective, performance perspective, resource management perspective. Um, so we are, really are able to get the kind of the best of both worlds, combining the the development and operational the operational expertise um, and and deployment history of SmartOS um, along with the developer enthusiasm for Docker. Yeah, and I think uh, to put a capstone on that, there's a quote from a blog post where you said that. Uh, Docker brings the containerization technology to an entirely different vector by emphasizing developer agility instead of operational efficiency. Um, is is that's there right. any, okay? That's okay, right. That's a that's a good summary of it. Um, so you've you've also mentioned an all container world in some of your writings. What yeah. are the advantages of being in an all container world that a more heterogeneous world does not have? Well, I mean, first of all, to be clear, I mean, we will always have a heterogeneous world of some flavor or another. I mean, Windows 2008 will be running until the, the heat death of the universe. Um, so, and we were, and actually, it's funny, you know, we had, uh, we just had a leap second, hopefully the last leap second, um, but these leap seconds often allow these old systems to self-identify. Um, <laughs> there are some still, there are, we, and, and we learned exactly how, because we do actually allow you to have hardware virtualization as well um, in the joint public cloud. So we actually do have a hardware virtualization in addition to, you know, as much as I decry it, or I decry it in part because we've implemented it, um, and I've seen it firsthand. With the last leap second, um, remember there was that old Linux kernel bug where the, the Linux kernel would just spin on the leap second? We hit the leap second, and all of a sudden, all these tenants start spinning. You're like, okay, those are the ones that are all running the old kernels, obviously. Those things are going to be with us forever. Um, so we are, you know, we're not necessarily going to be moving 
um, to a – when I say an all-container world, I really mean all containers for all kind of new development. Um, but w- when we are broadly a container world, when we think in terms of containers, not in terms of VMs, um, it allows us to do exactly what we did when we moved from physical machines to VMs. Why did we move from physical machines to VMs? Why do we manage VMs instead of physical machines? Every one of those reasons applies to containers versus VMs. It is about – and you know why did we move from – because in, actually in that case, it was lower performance, but it allowed for much greater density first and foremost. There was a, a big stem fu- step function. You had underutilized physical machines that were much better served as virtual machines. Well, today we've got underutilized virtual machines that should really be containers. If you've, you've got a, you know, a one gig VM in the cloud – that you're only using 100 megs of, 200 megs of, that should probably be a 256 meg container. You know, the, you, and you can let the other three quarters of a gig, or you know, however you adjust the numbers as appropriate. But you've got these un, underutilized resources in the cloud that, just as you had underutilized physical resources in the physical data center 15 years ago. So for all of those same reasons, all of the same efficiencies, and ultimately. It is about doing more with less. I mean, that is what we what we've been doing in infrastructure since its inception. And everybody has always been somewhat concerned against its inception that we would allow you to do so much more with so much less that no one would need to buy a computer anymore um, because we would be um, we would have kind of achieved this level of great efficiency. And people don't need to do it anymore. But what we have found, and this is, and I think this will continue to be true, is that when we allow you to do more with less, what we actually end up doing is just more. <laughs> we end up doing e- even more. We end up doing things that we couldn't have done otherwise. It's like Parkinson's no one, law. It, it's like what? Parkinson's law. What's Parkinson's law? That's like where uh, the the amount of work it takes to do something expands to fill the amount of time you allocate to it. There you go. Exactly. That's right. And so I think that there is something we said for that. And I think that we will, there are things now that we can go do in an all container world that you just can't do. I mean, I'll give you a concrete example. So we've got a a storage service that we developed um, called Manta. And Manta reflects this this container worldview where it's a, it's a storage service like S3. It's a cloud-based storage service. You can you can you know HTTP put and get. But if you want to actually compute on that service, instead of having to drag those objects out to EC2 or to transient compute, you can spin up a container on your object. So in that storage cloud, you can spin up containers where those objects live, you can perform compute on them without actually moving the object. The object never comes off the box that it's on. You spin up a container right on it, perform your compute, and then you're done. It's much more efficient. So you you are able to do these kind of massive kind of map reduce operations without ever moving data. Data never moves from off of a machine. Um, Those are the kinds of – when you allow those kinds of operational efficiencies – you simply allow people to do things that they couldn't do before. Um, that now there are possibilities that, hey, I can go do this. I couldn't do this before. 
or because it was just going to be too time-consuming or it wasn't realistic enough um, from a, a cost perspective. But now that you've made this so much cheaper, so much easier, now there's this new opportunity I can go chase. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see happen. We're going to see that happen a lot in an all-container world. Just as we saw the transition of VMs having surprising knock-on effects, um, I don't think that, that VMware would have thought that they were effectively, albeit in a very roundabout way, inventing cloud computing when they virtualized the x86 circa 2000. Similarly, I think that we are going to be doing, we are inventing a future that we can't even conceive of right now um, by moving to containers. And when we are in an all-container world, there are entire new latitudes for, uh, for innovation, entirely new vistas, and we're going to be able to do fundamentally very new and exciting things, I think. Definitely, and you touched on this some, but how do containers fit into the data warehouse space? Well, I, you know, I, I think that if you look at uh, – I'm a big believer. I know that we may be in the trough of despair, but I'm a big believer in the Internet of Things. Um, I, I think that there is, there is so much data to be gathered, right? I mean, you just think about how much – how many inefficiencies there are still in the world, and that you know, if, the, to me, the um, the experience of humanity is about extracting those inefficiencies because that's how all boats truly rise. All boats rise when we make the world a more efficient place. We, we are able to we're able to focus more on the things that we want to go do. We're able to, um, and you know. And GE has got a pitch for the Internet of Things that I mean, like this is like the Internet of Things solving world hunger. You know, it's it's great. Um, and I'm a I'm a big believer in that. I, I'm I, you know I know that it's a it's a long road, but I'm a very big believer that there is a lot of data that is out there that we are not doing doing anything with today because it's too hard to do anything with it. I think if you make it easier to perform ad hoc analysis on massive amounts of data, then you are enabling true data science where we can allow new discoveries effectively uh, across a whole variety of domains. So I think that containers, I mean, and certainly with the Manta model, what we have seen is that if we envision a world where you have just massive amounts of stored ad hoc data and when you have a new way of thinking about the world on your laptop that you as a data scientist or what have you can like bang out a, a new way of, of, of looking at data and then can quickly go deploy that and run that across you know repositories of massive repositories of data, petabytes and petabytes of data, and then get an answer back, um, it allows you to iterate on a hypothesis about the way the world might work, and it enables a new kind of scientific revolution, a data scientific revolution. For all the hype about data science and big data and Internet of Things and the trough of despair and all that, I honestly think that we are still in the dark ages of data science, and I think the renaissance awaits us. And I think it will be a, a, an entirely different world where we are truly performing data science of data in the large. I mean, if you look at, at actual science, real science, and you look at the way that science handles data right now, if you do information technology for a living, you'll throw up into your mouth when you look at what scientists are doing with data because they've got this massive amount right. of data. Right, so my, my, brother, got, my brother works at, uh, well, yeah. he recently came from working at the NIH, and, uh, and he was visiting me recently, and he was telling me about some of the 
methodologies that he was like spending four days on. And I was like, dear God, you need to get out of academia. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you think it's like you know, where people are literally like, oh, yeah, so we, you know, we had to do different experiments. So we swapped out all the hard drives. And we got, like, <laughs> so people have got like, oh, yeah, all these hard drives in my drawer. You're like, wait, those are actual, those are actual hard drives. Like, what, what are you talking about? Um, but the, this is kind of the state of the art. And, you know, if you have a grant, you know, if the, if the National Science Foundation is paying for your work, why is your the data that why is the data living in a drawer somewhere? You know why is that data not in a galactic national data warehouse where other scientists could iterate on that data? I mean, you should get to a point where you could I can perform a I I, I can perform science simply by looking at your data. I don't need to do anything else. I don't. There, no experiments need to be done. No no rats. That no vivisection. I, I'm convinced that scientists are actually secretly sadists. You know, a friend of mine did vivisection uh, of rats. So I mean, vivisection is this is gory, gory stuff. And so they, for the science, for the experiment they were doing, they had to get to the heart while it was still beating. And I'm like, this is seriously fucked up, man. I mean, it's like this is <laughs> this is. I mean, if you're not feeling some empathy when you're doing this, like you've got some mirror neurons that are missing. I mean, this is like. This is disturbing. I mean, I would much rather be able to perform science with a, you know, by writing some JavaScript or some Lua or something or some Python than by, I mean, I, I guess I'm just too squeamish. I don't actually like extracting the beating hearts of rats. Um, but, you know, and, okay, that's in the physical sciences, but I think if you, there are the biosciences, but I think if you look even more broadly, there is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of data that we can go gather and process and meaningfully act on in ways that, again, just extract inefficiencies, eliminate inefficiencies. And I, I think, you know, when you're able to do that, the sky's the limit about what you, what you can go do. Uh, and I think that, you know, we are, um, to me, getting to that all-container future from a data perspective is a really important component because it's going to allow compute and data to, to, to be much more harmonious than they are today. Right now, compute and data are very siloed, and they're siloed in part because of the abstractions that we've got. When we move to an all-container world, we are able to, to allow compute and data to live together um, safely um, and allow people to actually iterate much more quickly on hypotheses about how the world might work. So, but speaking in more particulars, how, how do, do containers improve the data warehouse, whether it's uh, throughput or cost reduction or what are the the specific engineering breakthroughs that uh, well I think that when you eliminate data movement which is what, what we have done in Manta by allowing you to spin up a container where your data lives you you don't extract data out of the warehouse you don't move anything out of the warehouse to process it and right now I mean to right now everything to use a physical analogy. If you have a data warehouse, everything has to be moved out of the warehouse across town where someone can go look at, look at it and then it, it, in order to be – you'll look at anything. And of course like the speed at which you can move your stuff across town is what limits what you can go do. Much more efficient to go take your compute into the warehouse and leave the data where it is. Um, there are big, I'm a big believer in data gravity. Data wants to live where it is. And containers are what allow you to do that. Containers allow you to spin up on that data safely and securely. 
Um, because you need to be sure that, like, the, the reason that I can, the, it's important to do a container, not a VM, is you need something that's light. You need something that, that can be done in a multi-tenant fashion because you're spinning up this compute element where the data actually lives. It's important that if that compute element misbehaves or attempts to delete the data or what have you, that it can't actually do that. So I, I'd like to – we've got about 10 minutes left, and I'd like to shift completely. Um, what is D-Trace? <laughs> Uh, so D-Trace is a um, facility for the dynamic instrumentation of production systems, uh, something I developed um, along um, with Adam Leventhal and Mike Shapiro back at Sun um, back in the day. Um, and D-Trace allows us to um, answer, I mean, we, we said it was concise answers to arbitrary questions. Um, so D-Trace allows you to ask questions about what the hell the system is doing and get a concise answer to that. Um, and we use D-Trace all the time, still use it every day, uh, to understand what the system is doing and why and allow us to actually um, do everything from understanding suboptimal performance to actually debugging transient problems and everything in between. How does D-Trace fit into the DevOps world? I mean, D-Trace is the ultimate DevOps tool, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, you know, back in the day, um, I used to hear like, well, D-Trace is, is, is great for operators, but um, I don't know if it really is a good fit for us devs. And then you talk to the operators, like, well, I can see how D-Trace is great for the devs, but I'm not sure it's a good fit for the operators. <laughs> um, the, the reality is um, it's, it, it really is designed um, to... Um, to, to um, reach across that chasm of dev and ops and to pull dev and ops. I mean, as I said earlier, I, I do think that there's a fundamentally a software development mindset versus an operations mindset, but I think that, that we get to DevOps when we maximize empathy for the other, and D-Trace allows us to do this. D-Trace allows operators to understand what the software is actually doing and why. It allows software developers to understand what is actually going on in this machine and why. allows people to get systemic views into full stack views of what is actually going on um, and allows questions to be phrased effectively arbitrarily to be able to to dig to root causes of problems. Uh, and again, we use it um, every day um, from both an operator perspective and from a development perspective to understand pathological systems. I had a conversation with Yunong Xiao from Netflix. He wrote a, <laughs> he wrote a really good blog post called Node.js in Flames, and he was discussing how Netflix migrated their REST APIs, well, many of their REST APIs at least, to RESTify, uh, almost exclusively due to the fact that it would allow for D-Trace inspection. Um, yeah. To, to exemplify D-Trace further, could you give an example use of how how you've seen D-Trace be used to, uh, or maybe uh, just a recent example that you've encountered, uh, how D-Trace you know, was, was used effectively to uh, solve a problem. Yeah, I mean, we I, we literally use it every day. So I, I could give you, you know, if I, I, when I've, I've been using D-Trace effectively daily for the last 15 years. So the, the, the number of problems that we've, we've diagnosed with D-Trace um, basically extends to the horizon. Um, and, you know, I have discovered any, uh, in any manner of pathologies. Actually, I'll give you kind of a, a, a concrete recent example um, that we uh, actually uh, wrote up as part of a um, – we actually had a service outage recently, the Manta service that I was describing. 
um, had a, an outage that was due to ultimately due to a Postgres issue, um, due to a um, we ended up with auto vacuuming um, due to transaction ID wraparound, um, which is a very arcane Postgres issue, um, and something that we wanted to add to the postmortem just because we thought it was detailed and interesting that a lot of people latched onto. Um, was that we used Dtrace extensively um, to figure out that Postgres was actually had frozen the database as part of this auto vacuum, but was then throttling itself. So, which is somewhat nonsensical that if the database, if no one can make forward progress in the database, then whoever's making forward progress needs to not throttle themselves. Um, and we we saw that it was spending a lot of time. Uh, we used Dtrace first to determine what I/O it was doing, and we then were prefetching that I/O manually. Um, and then we used Dtrace again to understand why and where the database was throttling itself. And this is a kind of a view that you would not really have um, without Dtrace. It'd be very hard to figure out where this thing is spending its time because it's not spending its time on CPU. CPU profiling would not tell you this. It's actually off CPU because it's throttling. It's sleeping. Um, with Dtrace, we're able to very quickly determine that. And we, again, we go into some technical detail in the postmortem. And, uh, and then we were able to actually, um, you know, it was a little bit exciting, but we actually dynamically modified Postgres to not throttle itself. Um, so, you know, with Dtrace, we were able to get absolute certainty about what it was doing and enough certainty that we would, could actually modify the running Postgres to simply not throttle it um, because this value is not actually dynamically tunable. But, of course, you know, we ultimately control heaven and earth. So we were able to – it was not dynamically tunable, but we, we dynamically tuned it anyway by modifying the, um, the actual variable that it was using to determine the throttle. Um, and that allowed us to actually accelerate uh, a great deal the, the time that it was, it was taking to actually auto-vacuum. It was a very, very large database. It was doing a huge table scan basically. So we're almost out of time. What is the most exciting thing that you're working on at Joyent that we have not discussed? That we have not discussed? Well, you know, I think that from my perspective, um, I think that we are, um, you know, the, the container revolution is finally at hand, um, and that opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, and I think that we are very aggressively moving down those possibilities. Um, we believe in a holistic approach. So we are doing, you know, we are one of the few out there that really believe that uh, in developing the operating system, uh, we are, um, the operating system itself is developed, is, is being developed very actively by us um, to kind of express that new reality. But I, I think that there's a lot of new potential out there. Um, so, you know, for us right now, um, we are really, um, pursuing um, making Triton everything that people want it to be and, and kind of aggressively fleshing out those features and, and staying on top of Docker features and so on. I think in terms of the future, we're very interested in things like Kubernetes um, and a, a Kubernetes Triton marriage is going to be very interesting, uh, something we're very actively exploring um, to allow Kubernetes pods to be deployed as Triton containers. Um, and we think it's going to allow people to actually, I mean, one of the things we like about Kubernetes is that it's up-leveling the le- level of abstraction. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, we got a lot going on. Uh, we're very excited to be a part of the container revolution. Like I said, we were in the, the right place for the wrong time, but now it's the right place at the right time. Uh, and there's a lot of work to be done. So we're just, we are busily grinding away and doing it. 
Awesome. Well, Brian Cantrell, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's uh, been a blast talking to you. You bet, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.